Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to episode 2780, originally called The Most Misunderstood Delicious Fish in America, and it was originally published November 24th, 2020. All right, so this one is about the lowly bullhead, the catfish. Some people call them pollywogs, hornpouts, a bunch of different names. But most people, ignorantly I may add, refer to them as mudcats, as though they live in the mud. Bullheads are actually aggressive little predators, and I'll save all my uh, soapbox preaching on the, the virtues of the noble bullhead for the old episode, since there's plenty of it there. You don't need me to thump the bullhead Bible any more than you're already going to hear today. What I decided I would give you for new content today is a delicious thing to pour on top of a pan-fried bullhead, and I'm going to tell you how to shuck a bullhead today and how to pan-fry a bullhead, etc., And uh, I'm going to tell you a sauce for it that's as keto as it comes. It's delicious. And if you don't like catfish or bullheads, it can go on many, 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 many things. I did it recently on white bass. Um, I've done this for pork many times. Pork would be nice with the addition of some peppercorn to it. But it's just a sage and garlic brown butter sauce. So I'm going to tell you how to do that, and then I'm going to tell you a new bait that I have for bullheads that's not in this episode because I just started using it a few months ago. So sage brown butter sauce, it could not get easier. What I recommend you do is if you're cooking something in a pan, you use the pan drippings in addition to what I'm about to tell you, though a classic one, you'd start with a fresh pan. To use the pan that I'm about to start with, you're going to need to deglaze it because it's got little stickies and gummies and stuff on there from cooking whatever you've cooked deliciously, hopefully in this case a little bullhead catfish. Um, and so what you're going to want to use is a little bit of white wine or a little bit of chicken stock or even just a little bit of water and just hit the hot pan with that and unstick all the stickables. And then throw in a half a stick to a whole stick of butter, depending on how much brown butter sauce you want to end up with. And this pretty much is everything that's going to make the sauce portion other than flavorings. So if you want a lot, you need to throw a whole stick of butter in there. And you're not going to have a lot. You're going to have It's a drizzling sauce. It's not a dipping sauce, right? And uh, we want to bring that heat just under medium. Now, that varies with your stove. But you do not want that butter to like start just going crazy ape when you put it in there but you want it to melt and you want it to get frothy and you want it to, to, to simmer and to start simmering around you want to keep it moving using something like a, uh, a wooden spatula is a great tool for this and you're going to get that going and as it begins to get that wonderful nutty smell to it and turn just a little bit brown just throw a big handful of sage chopped up sage in it fresh sage fresh sage for this You can do it with dried sage. It's not going to be anywhere near as good. Fresh sage, big handful, as much as you like, more than you think, because it's going to shrink, and you're going to keep it moving, okay? Keep it moving, and keep an eye on the heat. Don't let it scorch. You want it to turn brown, not black. All right, so if you have to lower the temperature, you can always raise it. If you have a gas stove, you have great control, as you already know, because you're wise and you have a gas stove. If you have an electric stove, 
and you think you're getting too hot with butter, pick. don't try turning the burner down alone. It will not be sufficient. Pick the pan up off the burner and turn the burner down, and then return the pan to the burner when you get it where you want it. Keep, it, keep picking it up, putting it back down. That's how you deal with electric. When it's pretty much a brown-looking butter, it's done. It's You've now made a brown butter sage sauce. Kill the heat and throw in a chopped-up clove or two of garlic and then move that garlic around in there and let the residual heat in the butter do its thing on the garlic. If you want, you can use a little bit of heat from the stove and bring the garlic to a little bit of a toasty brown, but it's pretty good just using the residual. There's plenty of heat left in that butter. And then put that over your food. How's that? How's that for bonus content? All right. Next up, real quick, um, I've got some YouTube videos on this, but you can look up other people's YouTube videos as well. I have started using two baits for, for bullhead catfish, and I have very few stolen baits when I do this. The first is salted shrimp. I've talked about it before on the air. But basically, you take shrimp, uh, just the cheapest like shrimp you can buy in the freezer section at Walmart is what I use for catfish. If, they have, if they're not peeled, you go ahead and peel the shells off them. You want raw, not cooked for this. Okay, Put them in a Tupperware thing, cover them in salt for at least a day. Then you can put them in a Ziploc bag with a little bit of extra salt, and you have salted shrimp. And you can look at my video to see how to do that. I'll put a link in the show notes today to, to, to the video if you haven't seen it yet. The other one is uh, Jell-O hot dogs. Jell-O hot dogs. They're a little messier because they get kind of sticky with the jello. You definitely want to make sure you have a rag with you catfishing anyway to wipe fish slime off your hands. But basically, you cut your, your hot dogs into chunks. And I, I cut them just, cut them, you know, like into, into medallions, basically. Fairly thick, you know, maybe a half inch thick, depending on the size of fish you're using. When I fish with them, I'm going to cut them in half and use a half of the size that I make for this, right? But when you cut them, into about you know three-quarter inch, half-inch thick medallions just across the hot dog, you get a really good cure with what I'm about to tell you next. You put them in a bag, and you pour some strawberry jello on them, and you shake them up and throw them in the refrigerator. In a day, they will be this bright red strawberry thing, and the catfish do like the strawberry jello, but the bigger benefit, in my opinion, it toughens the hot dogs up. I've fished at a lot of these ponds I'm going to talk about today, with plain old frozen shrimp, and it works great, and you get tons of stolen bait. Plain old Oscar Mayer Wiener hot dogs, works great, you get tons of stolen bait. With salted shrimp, I've caught two or three fish on a single bait, been able to reuse it. With the Jell-O hot dogs, I almost never get any stolen, though I seldom can reuse them because they hammer them pretty hard. But those are my two bits of bonus content, new content for you today. And with that, let's go back to the original episode from November 24th, 2020, episode 2780, the most misunderstood and delicious fish in America. And I will also point out, like I talked about yesterday, with shortages of protein and fat, this is a way to put protein in your diet at a time when I think we're going to see more and more shortages and short supplies in the food system or even if we are not unable to get them, we're going to pay more money. And more on this will come in the next Rewind episode as well, being prepared for this as well. And if you like what we're doing, you want to support us, just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. No jingle today, guys. Here we go, back to November 24th, 2020. So today, what are we going to talk about? Well, in line with the Miyagi Morning segment today, I was going to do a show about living free 
in an age of digital tyranny. Uh, not just digital tyranny, but digital controls and digital espionage, where all your data is being reported to the government and tracked, and digital dossiers are being built on you without your knowledge. And if you're doing it on Facebook, it's not just on Facebook. Facebook is tracking you across the entire damn Internet. Yeah. But I thought that's deep and hard for kind of a last show of the month, so why don't I do something fun and lighthearted, but... Truly a survival topic at the same time. How about we're going to do a whole show dedicated to, please don't, please don't tune out when I tell you this if you're not a fisherman or you just have preconceived notions about this little fish. The most misunderstood delicious fish in America, the bullhead catfish. Yes, we're going to do a whole show on the bullhead catfish. I am going to make it interesting. Give me a chance. I'm just going to say some of you have been listening to me for over a decade and time and time again you've said, I don't know. This topic, I just, Jack, I mean... And then you've said, I've listened to it, and I found it really entertaining. So even if you don't ever get out and fish, I think you'll find today's topic both entertaining and useful information, because someday you might need to fish, especially if you want to eat meat. When we're going into a new world where they don't want you to eat more than but seven grams of meat a day, you might need ways to obtain protein. And I'm about to tell you about a fish that is pretty much anywhere in the continental United States that has water. And I would say the few places it's not, you got enough like salmon and trout there that you don't need to worry about it. Um, but pretty much everywhere you can find these guys. They are delicious, and I'm going to go through every objection and myth today very quickly. It won't be a long show today. It'll be a rather quick one. But I'm going to give you the myth or the objection to why this is a terrible idea to use these fish for food. And then I'm going to destroy it. And you know I'm good at destroying myths. And I'm going to talk to you about why they're not just great fish, but where to find them, how to catch them, and why they're actually great for backyard systems like aquaculture and aquaponics. I'll give you the good and the bad with some mitigation suggestions, some favorite ways to cook them, and some final thoughts that if you're not convinced by the time we get there, maybe they'll do you in at the end and convince you that the smallest catfish is worthy of pursuit and consumption in the United States and uh, anywhere else the little guy has invaded, which in my understanding is in many countries he is an invasive species. Guess what? Learn to eat him because you will never get rid of him. That is one of the uh, the good and bad things about these guys. Once they're in a body of water, they are without taking some kind of stupid measure like blue stoning and killing all life in that body of water, you will probably have them in there forever. Even if you fish for them like crazy, which, again, makes them a wonderful resource to be harvested. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day today. First up today, Western Botanicals. Hey, look, herbs belong in your life. Herbs are nature's medicine, and almost everything that we have you could consider a natural problem, unless it's something we created through the consumption of something we shouldn't eat, which then the solution is stop eating that. There is an herbal remedy that can at least help with it, even if we need to rely on traditional medicines. And if you want to get the best source for herbs and herbal preparations and the stuff you need to make your own herbal preparations, like old beeswax and uh, menthol crystals and things like that, you want to use Western Botanicals. If it's there, it was either organically grown or wildcrafted. They have real people that really care about you if you pick up the phone and give them a call. They've been a loyal sponsor, been with us for 12 years. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, the Free State Project, or FSP as it's known. You can find their website 
at fsp.org. And if you want to see their latest initiative to get you involved in the project, go to fsp.org forward slash visit and H. That's all I want you to do. Say, Take some time off and go take a visit to the great little state of New Hampshire where these guys are working to create liberty in our lifetime. I have uh, been supporting these guys, and they've been supporting me one way or another for almost the entire existence of the Survival Podcast. I've spoken three times at their event, twice as a keynote speaker. So you know if I'm giving them that much support, I really believe in what they're doing. Uh, again, check them out and learn more at fsp.org forward slash visit and H. With that, let's go ahead and uh, dive into this subject. Since we're talking about misunderstood critters today in the bullhead catfish, I wanted to quote that, uh, that maybe could drive that home for us. Our uh, quote of the day today is from the Roman poet Phadrus. He once said, Things are not always what they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. That's a deep quote, and we can talk about how people judge others on their appearance or how people judge many things based on their appearance or first impression where they haven't dug deep enough to fully understand it. We could even use this to explain how people write off things like cryptocurrency, which has you know, ruined the opportunity for many to have become millionaires. But I'm just going to use it to talk about these little catfish today. You look at the bullhead catfish. It's an ugly little fish. And they don't get that big. We'll talk about that in a second. They're slimy. They can fin you, and that hurts. They're really good at stealing bait. But that's generally because there's a lot of them there, and the bait you're using is not rigged up to catch them. Um, they, uh, like I said, they can, they can fin the hell out of you. And when you look at them, they're kind of like... Half of their weight is head, which is not really the edible part. So it would seem like there's not a lot going on there. But what if I told you these critters were like... Let me describe this fish as it really is versus how it's perceived. Available in most places. Delicious to eat. Easy to clean. Easy to handle if you know what you're doing. And no one cares how many you take or how big the ones you take are. And you can have as many as you want. In general, in most places, that describes this fish perfectly. But that's not what we see. We see this slimy fish with a whole bunch of lore around why it's not good. And uh, if you got finned with one when you didn't know what you were doing, you probably have a pretty bad opinion of it. But let's see if we can change that. So let's start off with there are three main species of bullhead in North America. They are the black, the brown, and the yellow bullheads. But unless you have a record-class fish that you're going to submit, for everything we're talking about today, it really doesn't matter. But when you want to judge what kind of fish you have, you're not looking for the color of the fish itself because that will vary based on its diet and where you're at, etc. When I catch, I catch mostly black bullheads in my area. And you can tell by the color of the barbels, the little whiskers on their, on their chin and their face, those don't sting you. Some people actually think those are what sting No, they don't sting you. They have three fins, uh, two that come out to the side and one that comes up on the top, right in the middle of their body. Those have very sharp uh, bones, uh, pointed bones. And the smaller they are, the sharper they are, and the more flippy they are, and the harder they are to handle. So that leads to getting stung by the smallest among them uh, quite well. Of course, they need to be sharper when they're smaller because it's more likely that somebody wants to eat them. 
right? Um, but when it comes to the colors, black, brown, and yellow, you look at the color of the barbels, those little whiskers. And uh, But for taste, for flavor, etc., it doesn't really matter. In general, blacks get the biggest, followed by yellows, followed by browns, if I remember right. I don't care enough to really research that and tell you if I'm if I'm accurate or not with them. But, you know, a good-sized bullhead for eating is going to be about 9 to 10 inches and above. And I know that sounds really small, but when I tell you all the things I'm going to give you today, you'll understand why. Um, Taste-wise, they're all the same. And like I said, I catch mostly blacks, and they're very yellow in appearance in their skin color. They look almost the color of, like, the ones around here look a lot like flatheads, which get huge, but, of course, they have a different tail shape and a different head shape. But their coloration is very flathead looking. I bring them home. I put them in my ponds. And I start feeding them a diet of minnows and uh, fish pellets. And they tend to darken quite a bit. Even my channels, channel catfish, tend to darken quite a bit. In Florida, where I grew up and perfected the craft of catching, eating, and uh, enjoying this, these little guys, these bullheads. Uh, almost all the ones that I caught were black bullheads, and they were jet black in appearance. So, again, you're looking at the barbels, and you can look up like how many rays on their codules and stuff like that if you really care. To me, a bullhead's a bullhead, unless I get a really big one, and then maybe I'm going to get in the state record books or something like that. Um, I want to go through just the biggest objections to these fish as food fish, and explain to you why every single one of them is just wrong. And so there's a lot of things in the world that are opinion. And if your opinion, your opinion remains unchanged, I accept that. And I'm just going to tell you that I think your opinion's wrong. Or you just don't want to eat small fish or catfish or whatever, for whatever reason. That's fine. But the objections are ridiculous. The first objection is they're just too small. I mean, I've had places where they can routinely be caught over a pound to a pound and a half on average. That's that's not too small. But even the ones, like I said, eight to nine inches, when I get to the next part, you'll see why that's just, it's, it's just not true. They are not too small, right? Now, maybe where you're going, they're all like four inches. Okay, those are too small, but the species itself is not too small. You need another location or another tactic or another spot at that location that you're at. They're, they're just not, it, it's not a thing that you can't catch them at a size where they're good to eat. And again, about eight to nine inches is really a great size. Because the next thing is they're too hard to clean. You have this rather, you know, let's say you have one that's about a foot long. Okay, so about four inches of that is head. And the head is huge on them. That's why I call them bull head. So maybe it's, you know, a, a third of the length, but it's like, friggin' near half of the weight. And then you're going to have to fillet this thing and deal with this slimy skin, and you get these two little bitty fillets off of it. And I agree, if you fillet bullheads, unless you can catch a lot of really big ones, big four bullheads anyway, you know, over a pound, pound and a half in size, they, they, they would be. But if you learn how to shuck them, then they're, they're not. Shucking is, I got two videos for you because it's a, it's a very visual process to learn how to do. And once you know how to do it, it's very easy. But I'll give you the basics of it. The back of the catfish, you go behind that fin that can fin you all the way down by the tail. Right down there by the tail, I don't know what that fin's called, but it looks like a little tab that sticks out. Uh, right just, just, you know, maybe an inch up from the tail. 
you take a knife and you go underneath that and you cut a line up the fish's back and then you cut through the bone being careful not to cut into the skin and you basically break the backbone and either with your thumb with your knife and the thumb or grab a pair of pliers is what I do because it's just easier if you're cleaning a lot of them your finger doesn't start to hurt grab the backbone and slowly pull that's all you do and when you do that pull motion you end up in one hand holding the guts the head and the skin and in the other hand what you're going to have is a bone a, a bone in skinless perfectly clean little catfish And the only thing left inside it generally is a little bit of the liver. And if you really care, you can scrape it out really, really good. I just kind of hit it with a thumbnail. What comes out comes out, and I toss it in a little bit of salted cold ice water while I'm doing the rest of them. That's it. And it takes about 20 seconds when you're really fast, or if you're a little slower like me, about 35 seconds of fish to process them. So that means you can do 10 of them in, what, 3 minutes and 50 seconds? You understand? I mean, you see what I'm saying? Like that's that is not hard to clean. They're one of the easiest to clean fish if you know the right technique. And I want you to watch these two videos. One is kind of the most famous video ever on doing this, and he uses a technique where he uses the tip of the knife and makes sure he does not cut into the skin. The second one, I have not tried his technique yet. Somebody sent this to me, and he kind of cuts the bone at an equal angle on both sides, and this is supposed to prevent the skin from tearing when you, you do it, and it worked for him. I'm going to try it the next time I have something to clean. And if so, it will make it a little easier, because occasionally if you nick into the skin when you cut through the bone, watch the video, that'll make sense. When you pull it, everything works except like one side or the other, the skin stays on the fish. If that happens, literally all you do is grab the edge of the skin with the pliers and yank and, and pull it off. But I think the second video might be kind of the new way to go. The next objection is they taste like mud. They take like taste like mush, etc. They have a poor quality taste. Okay, I'm going to go out and say there may be a place with really shitty water or something where maybe 1% of these fish don't taste good if you do everything right. And I I'm giving that as a maybe because I don't try, I try not to deal in absolutes. I mean benefit of the doubt. I have never had a bullhead that did not taste delicious. I've eaten them in Florida. I've eaten them in Pennsylvania. I've eaten them in Texas. I've eaten them in Arkansas. I've eaten them in Alabama. Uh, I've eaten them in Tennessee. I, I've eaten them camping in uh, North Carolina. And I, a couple times, found places where I was able to catch them during my hike from uh, Pennsylvania to New Hampshire along the Appalachian Trail. And I have never, ever, ever, ever infinity had a bullhead that didn't taste delicious. They don't taste like anything but catfish. In fact, I would say that they actually, to me, have a more pleasing taste than channel catfish, which are raised for food. Um, the next, and it kind of goes in with this, they eat their own poop, they eat other fish's poop, etc. They don't. This is stupid. Um, The whole eat your own poop thing, I mean, you, you've clearly ignored like the laws of thermodynamics. That's, it doesn't work, right? You, you, was it was energy loss, right? That's just dumb. Um, they are basically predators and scavengers. If they could fit it in their mouth and it's something that's pleasing for fish to eat, they'll probably eat it, which is, you know, if they eat their own poop, why are they stealing your worms or your shrimp? 
It's just, it's not a thing where they eat mud. Nothing eats mud. You know, I mean, they just don't. I mean, that's just biologically inaccurate. Uh, one I thought was really interesting is you can only keep them during cold weather if you want them to taste good. This I also find to be asinine. I, there is no reason for this. There could be a little bit of one that might ha apply to texture, but I'll cover that in the next objection. I, again, I've eaten these fish all over the place. The last ones that I made, I made for my wife and myself. They were caught in September in a small pond like under an acre in Texas that's probably four foot deep at the deepest. So you're talking about water that's definitely in the high 80s to low 90s in water temperature. And they tasted fantastic. Kind of in line with this, though, and this is a new one to me, if you freeze them, they get mushy. And you, so they, you can eat them, but you must eat them fresh. They cannot be stored for later. Uh, this is also wrong. However, there could be some truth to it. What makes any fish mushy at uh, being frozen is the amount of water in it. And if you have a lot of water in, in a fish then you're going to have that water kind of form crystals and explode down at the cellular level, and that can affect the texture of fish. This is not a bullhead issue. This is a fish issue. And the way that you get around this is salt. Salt. That's, that's the magic secret of this, because what does salt do when you put salt on meat or flesh of any kind, right? It pulls the moisture out and it replaces it with itself it helps to preserve the item so we can salt the hell out of a fish and make a salted fish and preserve it without refrigeration or freezing but remember when i said i'm cleaning them i have a bowl full of salted ice water that i throw them into that's step one if you're going to eat them right away you don't need to do anything else if you're going to freeze them I advise the following you take a sheet like a half sheet pan for you know some you bake cookies on in an oven and a cooling rack, you set that on there. You lightly salt both sides of them. You set them on there and throw them in the refrigerator overnight before you freeze them. In the morning or the next day when you go to freeze them, kind of pat them off with paper towel or a tea towel or something like that to take that extra moisture off them, and either really good Ziploc bags or freeze, uh, you know, uh, vacuum seal bags, and you know as many as you want per meal. Date them, label them, and throw them in the freezer, and you. I could cook the two side-by-side side fresh out of cold water, frozen out of warm water, and I guarantee you, you can't tell me the difference. It, it, maybe you're a bullhead sommelier or something like that, but anybody that's normal would not be able to tell the difference. Um, and you'd have a 50-50 chance of being right by guessing anyway. Um, let's talk about them from a standpoint of how do we find them. The beauty is they're almost everywhere. There's almost nowhere where fish swim in North America that you can't find bullheads, except a little bit of like the center north of the United States, parts of some parts of Montana and stuff like that. Uh, and again, there's probably enough, you know, if you're in Flathead Lake, there's enough lake trout in that lake that you don't care anyway. But they really seem to like small body, bodies of water. And I think this is largely because we think of a bullhead as something that uh, probably doesn't have a lot of predatory pressure. Uh, a lot of fish eat, especially little baby bullheads. But the thing that is most, like if you live where flatheads are, larger bodies of water where flatheads lurk, bullheads are great flathead bait, really great flathead bait. So they're going to be a lot more uh, reclusive in a body of water where something can eat them. They're also kind of, 
they're a little bit difficult to find sometimes in the body of water. So if you have a really big lake, it might be loaded with bullheads, but there might be a few or five or six honey holes where that's really where they are heavily, and they do move seasonally. So they're just also easier to find in small bodies of water. So I found that the smaller bodies of water tend to be my best places to catch bullheads. Uh, they like cover. This includes culverts, bank cutouts, and holes. And one of the best places I've found for them, if you have a small pond or something like that that has a large drainage culvert that actually is in the water, up in those culverts, especially in the summer when it gets hot. I mean, sometimes it'll just literally, you can't, uh, you can't even understand how many of them are in there. You start catching me like, how are they still coming out of there? Like, like that. They also like, if you find creeks that they're in, and you have kind of fast-moving parts of the creek, look for your slow backwater, slow eddy, slow deep holes. And if you find them in one of those, again, you're like, this hole's not that big. You know, it's as big as a bedroom. And you've, you've caught dozens and dozens, and they keep coming. They, they, once they find a place that works for them, they tend to congregate there in large numbers. Um, they also love park ponds. Park ponds are probably the best place to find them. And there's a couple reasons. Number one, most of the people that fish there um, act like they're fishing for, like, I don't know, bluefish or something. Like they're, they're, If you go to an average park pond, you just see people with such oversized gear. You know, there's little bluegills and little bullheads and stuff like that in there. So they tend to not do well at like They, they, they get their bait stolen like crazy because... They're oversized for the fish that they're, they're going on. So that gives them a high probability of not coming out of the pond. Most people don't keep them. And yet those park ponds, like if somebody catches a bass or a channel cat or any of the other predator species of any size, they tend to keep them. So you have a place where there's this unnatural predator and human being with rod and reel taking away all the other predator fish because as I've been saying, the bullhead is a predator. It's a scavenging predator, but it is a predator. If you don't think they're predators, get yourself a regular old fish tank, put some bullheads in it, and once they adapt to their new home, take a dip net full of minnows and throw them in there and watch what happens. Because I've done this, and what you hear as soon as those minnows go in there is bloop, 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 and they'll just keep eating until there's nothing left. It's amazing how many minnows one bullhead can eat, and they, they don't seem to have a problem stopping. They are predators. So if you have a park pond, a neighborhood pond, something like that, where the predator fish are generally under high pressure from, from, from anglers, and bullheads are either ignored or thrown back, then you're going to have a lot of bullheads. Do you see how that works, right? Um, but they're also generally overpopulated, and that means that If you find a place with lots of them, one of the best things you can do to improve the quality of what's there is take many out. Not some, many out. One bullhead mother, If you, you I'll see if I can find this video. There's a video of a, of a mother bullhead taking care of her babies. They're very good parents. And it's this massive black cloud and this one little mama bullhead taking care of them. I mean, they produce in large numbers, and even though other things do eat them, They are not, you know, on the kind of preferred edible species list for a lot of other predators, especially things like bluegills eat small fish of all kinds. Bluegills, perch, sunfish, 
the whole, you know, pumpkin seeds, uh, green sunfish, etc. A little bullhead is a spiky ordeal. Unless a fish is designed to be able to eat something with those dagger spines, they tend not to be eaten. So they reproduce and they survive at a very high rate. So you're not going to hurt them. And that's one of the reasons, again, that, that park ponds tend to be so good for them, but also tend to be overpopulated. And I would just generally say if bluegill are present in a body of water, it seems to me, in my experience, it's almost inevitable that so are bullheads. And if you kind of look at One of my tricks for finding them in a body of water is, assuming you're not just completely swarmed with an overpopulation, you'll generally have a place that if you throw like a worm out, a little piece of worm on a small hook with no weight, and it sinks, bullheads will just hit it like crazy. Like Not bullheads, I'm sorry, bluegills. They're there, and they'll hit that bait, and they'll hit that bait, and they'll hit that bait, and they just keep hitting that bait. Right, like, like you can't, like, it almost feels like they're waiting for you to throw another one in. You, if you've ever experienced, it, you know what I mean. And then, as you cast that worm piece or anything, you know, whatever they're hitting, a little further out and a little further out and a little further out, you get to a point where they don't really hit anymore. Maybe you pick up one or two, but like, they've decided, hey, you know, water's getting a little deep. Those bass are getting a little close. This is our comfort zone. Right at that edge point, that's usually a great spot to start your fishing for bullheads and a little further out from there. I'm not saying you might not find them 20 feet out from there. I'm, not, I'm saying you might not find them in shallow water. But I'm saying in lakes and ponds, that point where the bull, bluegills tend to stop hitting, and again, some ponds, they're everywhere because there's not any predators present. But if they, are, if they do have that, that edge where they kind of stop, that's a good place to give a shot to anyway. Next, catching them. Bottom rigs are the way to go. They are not the 100% bottom scavenger people think they are. Like I said, I've seen them take minnows off the surface. It depends on how hungry they are and how much food is down where they're at. The biggest bullhead I ever caught was close to a Texas state record black bullhead. It was in a pond a little over an acre. Exact kind of pond I'm talking about. Muscovy ducks swimming around. You know, geese, kids playing, stuff like that. And I was just messing around, and I was fishing with a beetle spin, which is a little, like, grub tail, a little white grub tail with a little silver uh, spinner on it. Uh, fairly large for a beetle spin. I don't remember the exact, you know, ounce or whatever. But, you know, the grub, the grub tail on it without the curly Q tail is probably close to an inch long. So it's pretty big for a beetle spin. And I came by uh, kind of a snap uh, over, you know, laid over log. And I was thinking bats. I mean, it just is the obvious thing in that scenario. And, man, something hammered it, and it was a little light-action rod, and it was taking drag. And I was completely shocked when it ended up being a bullhead. But, you know, he smacked, you know, a, a, a lure that I was running. It's probably about four foot of water, and I was probably running it about six inches under the surface. So, you know, three and a half feet off the bottom and, and four feet of water, running fairly fast, and he hit it like you would expect a bass to hit it, except instead of jumping, you just straight down. And so they are predatory fish, but your number one place to find them is the bottom. That's why they're built for that. Their eyes are built for that. Their feelers, their whiskers are built for that. That's what they're built to do is feed very low to the bottom. I've always found the best results with a slip rig where you have something like a snap swivel or a just a straight barrel swivel to a leader to a hook, 
and above the swivel you have your weight. And when the fish takes the bait, they can pull the line through the weight. So that type of a, of a rig is what I've found best. I've seen people use kind of standoff rigs where the weight's at the end and the hook is standing off from there like a saltwater rig type in small. Uh, that works too, but anything on the bottom. Bait-wise, they will surprise you what they'll eat and what they won't eat in some instances, depending on their mood or where they're from, or I don't know. Some of, I think some of them actually have some weird tastes or something, but in general, if there are bullheads present, worms will catch them. It may not be the best bait, but worms will identify bullheads live here, and you can start trying to dial in uh, maybe baits that they prefer. In some places, worms might be the best bait. Um, like I said, um, you, it, it just seems that in some places they they don't want what they, they, they hammer in others. I don't know if it has to do with maybe some level of nutritional deficiency uh, or what they're eating native, having a smell or a scent that's more like this artificial thing that we're using as humans. But I have never, ever, ever, never infinity found a place where they exist and they can't be caught with worms. They, they like worms. My kind of number one go-to, and this one has never failed me, but it is the case that if you're getting a lot of it stolen, you may want to switch to worms to find out if the reason is they're just all too damn small, and it's hot dog. If you have fish that are in like the 8-inch and up size, and you use like, you cut a hot dog about... Three quarters of an inch thick is like a, a, a ring, and then you cut that into thirds, and you're using a third with a you know like a standard like number four bait holder hook. A fish of that size is just going to grab that piece of bait and take off and be very easy to catch. If you get into a body of water where you have a lot of like four inch pain in the and that's where, another reason people hate them. If you get into a place like that, they're pecking at that and they hot dog falls right off. So switching a smaller hook and worms, if you're getting a lot of stolen bait, may identify that that's your problem. Then you need to move. Because what you'll find is many times, whatever if you catch one in that particular spot with that particular technique, most of them are within an inch or two of that size. They tend to travel in schools of close to the same size. I'm not saying I've never caught a really little one when catching mostly nice ones. I've never saying I've been catching you know eight, nine inches and, and lucked into a, you know, a 16, 17-inch bullhead, because I have. But in general, they kind of flock together. When we get to keeping them in backyards, I, I, I think maybe you'll understand why. Cut bait in general works good, but what I found works best are shiners, and specifically golden shiners, which are real common in the southeastern and, and south-central, southwestern states in bass fisheries. So these are the big-ass golden shiners. I mean, these things get 9, 10 inches long. Um, those cut up, they love that. I've never had them not take that. Shad works really good, but the shad that comes in a bag in you know a grocery store or a Walmart has never worked on anything well for me. They're kind of cured or something. Nothing seems to want them. And frozen shad work, but you talk about something that's mushy when it's frozen. So if you have a place where you can catch fresh shad, those are one of the best, if not the best baits. So let's talk about something that's weird. Corn and bacon. I have been to places where, you know, three or four green giant niblet corn kernels on a hook with a weight and put it where the bullheads are and you can't 
beat them off with a stick. I've been to places where you try the same thing and you know they're there because you catch them on other baits and they won't touch it. And the same with bacon. I have seen, when I was a little kid, I remember this girl that taught me how to fish. I say girl, she was a young woman, but, you know, I don't know, 20-ish. At this place I used to fish all the time when I was like 10. And she was fishing right next to me. And she had hot dog and I had bacon. And she would literally put her line, it was a bobber, same distance down to the hook, two inches away from mine and pull a fish out and I wouldn't get a bite. I was using bacon, she was using hot dogs. So I, I, I can't explain that because I've had other times when bacon is the lick, you know, especially because it stays on the hook well. They really, really like it. I don't know if that just means those fish are hungrier and more open or they have a taste for it. I don't know if it's regional, but I've just seen both of those baits work and fail. Uh, but they are ones you can try. And what's nice about both of them, they're really good at staying on a hook. Shrimp works great, but again, when you get into smaller fish, they tend to steal it. But uh, just the cheap frozen shrimp you buy to eat at Walmart, cut into about a third of their size with the right size fish. And the beauty of that is that there's channel catfish in, in the area. Channels love shrimp too. You can also try shrimp-flavored fish bites. Fish bites are something that I was turned on to by some of the saltwater guides that I follow on YouTube. Uh, they've become a real favorite for like multi-species uh, surf fishermen. I'm definitely going to try them the next time I go back to Florida or the next trip I take to the Texas coast. I have uh, Bama Beach Bum, who I love watching on YouTube, uh, has a whole series where he went like four days in a row using nothing but fish bites for bait, and he caught something like 12 species in 70-odd fish over four days. So it definitely works. I've tried it. The one body of water I tried it in, it worked fairly well. Action wasn't real heavy that day, so I couldn't really compare it to, what well, you know, did it get as much action as, as uh, earthworms or whatever because nothing really did that good that day. But I did catch a couple on it, and I'm going to be trying that again. If you can catch them, the best bait I've actually found for bullheads are local minnows. So if you come up to a lake or a creek or whatever and you look in and there's minnows swimming around right at the edge that are big enough to get on a hook that you can net with a dip net, that is bullhead gold. It's free bait. It's right there. Sometimes you throw a couple little pieces of bread in the water to attract them and boom and done and you're golden. Right? Um, D'Ambrosia minnows are what's a lot in a lot of bodies of water around here because they've been heavily stocked to help control mosquitoes. They work. It's just hard to get ones that are large enough, but they don't, they're not like, it's, this is not a trout where if you have like four minnows jammed on a hook together, a trout's like, uh, no, that's, that's not natural, right? <laughs> that's not, something's wrong there, right? Bullheads don't give a shit. So you can use multiple minnows and they work really, really good because that's probably the number one thing that they're eating. They like crayfish, but particularly small ones and soft-shell ones. If you have a lot of small crayfish in a body of water, what you can do, it's kind of mean, but it works really well, is kind of peel the shell off the back of them so they're more soft, leave the shell on the tail, pull the, the, the pincher claws off, and that will work well for smallmouth bass, channel catfish, bullheads, etc. Uh, and another go-to, uh, if you have access to lots of them, really cheap or what have you, is small goldfish. And I mean little goldfish, like... Um, like the ones that are 16 cents a piece at the fish store for feeding to other fish. Uh, those work really good. So if you do a lot of backyard aquaculture like I do, you might have goldfish that breed every year, and you might have tons of those, and it might be a good use for because you don't want them all growing up into big, giant goldfish because you 
end up with too many goldfish and end up with goldfish fertilizer. Right. So that might be another way. They're also a great multi-purpose bait. In general, bass love goldfish. So do um, channel catfish. And uh, larger uh, panfish will hit them as well, like larger bluegills, etc. So that's another thing to consider. Uh, some other stuff, fishing rod-wise, whatever you have. But, I mean, ultralight to medium action spinning rods are probably the go-to. Uh, most of my rods are like a medium light, medium light, fast action, six foot ish range rod with something like a, a 20 to 30 class reel on them. And that's, that's overkill for most bullhead needs. Um, the main reason I use the, those rods for bullheads is when I go fishing, I target whatever is being most cooperative at the time. And that's a very universal rod, as we talked about recently with my interview with one of the fishing guys that we had on the show. Um, next up. If you're not getting bites, switch bait and or move. They're either there or they're not. Now, when you get certain cold snaps and pressure and stuff like you know, pressure changes stuff, I've seen the bite kind of just go away and nothing really wants to bite. But bullheads are not picky. You can fish for you will probably have better luck early morning and and, and evening. But I've caught them three o'clock in the afternoon, sun high all the time. If you find them they will generally hit. They're a lot like white bass in that way. They're not hard to catch, but sometimes they're hard to find. Um, a lot of folks, because they're bottom feeders, don't think about using bobbers or floats or whatever. A bobber set to about one inch above the bottom works great in some situations, especially where you're having a lot of bait theft because it's a good strike indicator before you feel it. And at least if you're dealing with a swarm of itty-bitty ones, you can get one or two caught and figure that out and move or just decide to do something else that day. Because if you have a swarm of four-inch fish, you're, you're probably not going to see a lot of bigger fish around. Um, the way you can determine the exact depth of where you're fishing at without like a fish finder or radar or whatever, get a, get a bobber and get a weight that you can attach like with a snap sole or something. You can take it back and go back to fishing anytime you want to. And, and use a weight heavy enough to sink that bobber. Okay? And then, yeah, I think that's four feet. So put your bobber four feet from the weight and cast it to the spot you're going to fish. If the bobber floats, well, you know the weight's sitting on the bottom and you're less than four feet. Take some slack off. If the bobber sinks, you know you're deeper than four feet. Either reel it in and figure out where four feet is or... Reel it in, raise the bobber to five feet, cast it back out. And you will be able to really quickly dial in kind of in this spot. Here's how deep. That's a great tip for bank fishing anywhere. Because if you're somewhere and you're in one of these park ponds, and a lot of these park ponds, the water is mostly two, three, four foot deep. And you find one spot with a drop off, there's probably fish there, bullhead or otherwise. Um, next, chumming. Chumming is a great idea. Heads. They respond really, really well to it. It can make all the difference in the world. There's a lot of different chum mixes and things like that. People think everything is a stink for these fish. It doesn't. My favorite go-to chum has become dog kibble because it sinks and it doesn't stink and it's cheap. So I buy like the generic dog food. And when I say kibble, I'm talking about like the games burger type thing. They come in individual little packages in a box, and they look like little extruded pellets, which is what they are, and they kind of sort of are supposed to look like ground meat or something. 
it sinks. It sinks, it has a high fat content, a good protein content, and it, it doesn't stink. So it sinks but doesn't stink, and it works. And since it comes in these nice little packages, you throw one or two of these little packs in your fishing bag. And when you get out, you just kind of throw a handful here, a handful there. When you start getting a response, start fishing in that spot. If it starts to wane, throw a couple more handfuls, try again. Really, really easy. The other thing that works really good with bullheads is, and catfish in general is blood meal. And I'm talking about the blood meal that you put in your garden for fertilizer. And there's a, a company that sells like this blood chum or something like that, uh, catfish, and it's marked as a catfish chum. It's blood meal. That's what it is. It's all that it is. It's just blood meal. The thing about it is it kind of it's kind of hard to cake together. The, the, the chum you buy has something added to it that kind of makes it where you can kind of push it into like a blood blood ball, you know, and drop it so it'll sink. So what I've come up with, and I use this with other chums as well, is a thing called a cricket puck. And a cricket puck is a pretty cool little invention. It's a cricket cage for people to fish with crickets, and it folds up in a puck about the size, a little bit bigger than a skull can. And when you untwist the two sides, it expands, and it's got a little net between it. It's about eight inches long. When you throw your chum in there, you tie a string to it, you throw it out where you want a chum, and when you're done, you reel it in, dump it out, fold it up, put it back in your fishing bag. And that way you're letting the smell of the chum out, but the fish really can't feed on it very well. One thing to be careful of with it, though, is I have had turtles try to tear it apart, though they haven't succeeded yet. Uh, some of these ponds are full of turtles. All right. Uh, now, let's talk about this for backyard systems, aquatics, uh, aquaponics, aquaculture, etc. The good. They're easy to pellet train. When you first bring them into a tank and you throw fish pellets in there for them to eat, they won't eat. They're going to go to the bottom. They're going to hide in little holes, whatever. They're going to be miserable. Eventually, the belly will rumble, and so you feed them a little bit at a time until you observe feeding behavior. And once they condition to this, when you go out and feed them, they'll eat like any other fish. And once they start eating, they will put some weight on pretty quick. Next, they can be fed minnows, and you can self-propagate those. Freshwater shrimp, as I've talked about before, etc. Anything like that. I advise you, when you first put them into a system, if that system does not have minnows, etc. in it, and you want to pellet feed, pellet feed first. And once you get any of them, if you keep adding fish to that, Fish mimic, just like poultry do. So as long as any are surface feeding, once that feeding action starts, they're like, hey, what's the pill doing? I better go see. Oh, this is good to eat. So once they start feeding, you can, because the nice thing with the pellets is when you're low on minnows, you don't have minnows, whatever, you want to fatten them up faster, they're a great way to put weight on your fish quick. And it's cheap. I use about 150 pounds of fish food a year. That's three bags. And, and it's not expensive. I just use regular old Purina, uh, now what the hell is it called? Aquamax, Aquamax, uh, fish pellets. And my fish, of course, eat a awful lot of other forage as well because we have minnows and stuff like that going on there. But if you want to get them on pellets, if you're bringing them out of the wild, it's a good idea to kind of starve them a little bit until they realize that those pellets are good to eat. Uh, but it's really great that you can feed minnows. You can keep a separate tank. Your minnows eat mostly plankton and stuff like that. You can throw a little tiny handful of pellets in there once in a while to help supplement and explode the population. You take a minnow net, you dump in the other tank, and you fed your fish. It's really great. Um, 
They get it to size relatively fast if well fed. So when I was talking about catching those like four and five inch fish. Okay. If you're taking them home to eat, you know what you do with a four or five inch bullhead? You, you, you throw it back. If you're, if you're raising fish in your backyard, then you bring them home and throw them in your tank and start putting size on them because a four inch bullhead will turn into like a nine inch bullhead in about six to seven months without any real effort if you already have a system set up like this. Um, so they're great for that. They survive in water when other fish won't. If you have bullheads dying, except for one thing that we'll talk about in the bad, uh, but if you have bullheads dying, you have really, really bad water problems. They can survive in water that, you know, bass, trout, channel catfish even, etc. won't. Pretty much... If you have water quality issues that will kill bullheads, you have water quality issues that would kill goldfish, right? They're kind of in that level of, you know, honey badger badass as well. So that's great for backyards because that gives you more time if you have water quality issues to catch it. This doesn't mean to abuse this system, but it means that you get, you don't, you don't first notice there's a problem because all your fish are dead, which can happen with some other species. Um, and they will breed under the right conditions. Which means you can have self-sustaining systems in a backyard. And basically what I've determined they needed for that is enough space and kind of hides and stuff like that. And what seems to work well is cinder blocks. At least two of them abutted to each other. So you get, you know, a double length tunnel. And they seem to be breeding in that just fine, though everybody says they need mud to breed in. Uh, I have them breeding in, in, in bodies of water that have no mud. If you can create like a mud tub or something for them, supposedly that'll help more. But I did not notice much of a difference by doing that. The bad, along with mitigation. Something's bad doesn't mean it don't do it. It means you need to learn what to do about it. Number one, they can produce a lot of waste. I have found my systems that have significant bullhead populations, the amount of solids in the waste stream is higher, and that's because they eat so damn much. Right, So they eat a lot, they grow fast, they produce a lot of poop. No more so than tilapia. But you're kind of in that league with them. What does that mean? That means they're a great aquaponics fish. That means that you need to use lots of agitation, multiple cascades, uh, solids filtration, etc. in systems that run them. But that's, a, again, if you're doing aquaponics, more waste is good. It grows more plants, right? So... Um, they're, they're, again, they're, they're kind of, when I say that, I'm, I'm talking tilapia level waste, not some sort of, you know, black plague or something of waste. Um, the biggest thing with them, they do not work in tight confines. A lot of people that do aquaponics and all, they use for their sumps and their fish tanks, like IBCs and whatever. If you're going to do that, you really need to put some thought because even though it's a lot of water, maybe 300 gallons, it's only a four by four footprint. And it's kind of vertical, and everybody wants to be near the bottom. So they'll attack each other and eat each other. And, and, and I mean, you might find one that has, like, its body eaten off of its, and it's still alive, and, like, it's missing most of its flesh, or its tail is gone. I've seen that. There's two things to do to mitigate that. One, you provide a lot of hides and edges in places where everybody can get away to their own little spot, because they'll be happy to do it if you give it. Rocks built into structures, cinder blocks, etc. This is all um, PV, large PVC pipe, 
you know, bolted together in like fish towers or whatever and weighted down in some way because some, the big PVC will tend to float on you, things like that. And that will, that will solve 90% of your problem. And then the other is just good management practices. If you're running them in backyard tank systems, it's a good idea to kind of have like tank one, tank two, tank three. And if you're, you're getting them in general at a specific size, then they all go into tank one. And then when they get to a certain size, we either move them to tank two or we start adding to tank two. And then when they get to a certain size, we start adding to three and we start cleaning them out of one and using them and harvesting them. What I'm saying is try to keep them in relative size agreement. So where this happened the worst, before I understood how aggressive they were toward each other, I had like a freaking 16-inch huge one in a tank with a lot that were like eight or nine inches, and she just tore them up until I figured out what was going on, right? Um, so this kind of, they don't have to be, you know, all the same. But let's try to keep like small, medium, and large categories of them in any sort of like, You know, if you're losing like 100-gallon Rubbermaids or something like that, then you need to think about this. If you're using like small garden ponds that are a couple thousand gallons or so, Miyagi ponds like I do, et cetera, I don't think this is – I've not had any issues. And again, lots of hidey holes and things like that. Um, next up, they can hurt you with those barbed fins. They can hurt you. One of the ways to mitigate this is simply to learn how to handle them properly. And I, I'm not going to really say much about that, but it, there's a right way to do it. And once you learn how to do it, that problem goes away. The other thing is a fish lip gripper, and you don't ever actually have to touch them. And I have a really good compact one at T-Spaz. I'll put a link in the show notes to it for you. Um, I use that when I go fish for them because there are times we get into them heavy. We might catch 20 or 30 of them. That's a lot of slime on your hands. So it, just in keeping your hands clean, it's and you're not going to get stabbed. And the, again, the little bitty ones are the ones that tend to get you the worst because they're hardest to get around. You give me one that's 10 inches, and I can just grab it in between the spines, and it's it's easy. You get one that's like four and flipping around like crazy because it's afraid you're going to kill it. And, I mean, it locks out its spines. Like, I'm going to get – you want to eat me? I'm going to make myself as unpleasant for you as possible. So it's understandable, but that is one of the – and just proper handling. Um, the next is they have one thing that will nuke them and kill them. And this is true of all skin fish, all catfish, eel-type fish, etc. Ick. Ick is like aquarium AIDS. Okay, When any aquarist will tell you like the thing they never want to do is looking at their fish and see little white bumps on their fish. Uh, this is a parasite that is difficult to get rid of, and the way you get rid of it in an aquarium is you raise the temperature of the water, and that shortens the life cycle. So you think that'd be bad, they reproduce faster. Well, here's the thing. You can't kill them when they're on your fish, and you can't kill them when they're a little cyst laying in the bottom of your tank that you can't see. That little cyst eventually hatches, and when they're freeborn in the water looking to attach themselves to the next fish... That's the only time you can kill them. And so you want the reproductive cycle to be short, and then you increase salinity in the water, it's salt, and you nuke them. There's also like really atrocious chemicals you can use and what have you, but in general, you up the salt level in your tank. Freshwater fish can have salt in the tank. To, to, uh, I'm not going to get into exactly how much, but you up that salinity to something that's tolerable to the fish, 
and you accelerate the life cycle. Well, you can't generally do that in a 2,000-gallon pond in a backyard. So if you get ick in any sort of aquaponics system or something like that, and you have catfish, it is just devastating to them. Scalefish tend to survive ick infections. There is ick in all bodies of water. What makes it bad in aquariums and systems like this is it's a much more contained body of water, and so there's a prolonged contact between the host fish and the parasite. So it's something you want to try to avoid. I have not had a problem with it except for one time, and it was in an IBCs in an aquaponics system. And I didn't even really ever think about it being an issue. So, And again, aquaponics, we don't want to go to high salinity in an aquaponics system. So uh, it is just something to be aware of. It's not dangerous to humans. So if you did notice it's starting to affect your fish and they were of graduation size, you might just go ahead and process them all and kind of start over. Again, in all my other larger systems, I've not seen a single fish with ick on it. Favorite ways to cook them. Again, I shuck only at this point. I am not going to fillet a bullhead. I am not going to stake a bullhead. They don't get big enough. I am going to shuck, which is 20 to 40 seconds per fish, and you end up with this little bitty fish that's all bone and meat and nothing else, and little fins that are delicious when they're crispy. That little tail fin is delicious crispy. And usually what I do... When I, I'm, I, I, I freeze them, like I said, if I'm going to freeze them, I make them fresh, either way. On each side, I will take my knife and I will cut into the flesh and make three little hash marks in both sides. There's a lot of fat in catfish, and that helps that fat kind of render out, and it also keeps any fat you're frying them in from kind of penetrating in and getting locked in and making them greasy. And it also just lets flavor in. My favorite way to do them... Okay, I'll admit it. It's breaded and pan-fried with Everglades or Louisiana fish fry. That's when I'm cheating. Okay? They're delicious. I mean, I, I try to eat almost no carbs anymore. And nine times out of ten when I make fish of any kind, I don't do this anymore. But there is nothing. as This Everglades shit is delicious. It's kind of expensive on Amazon. It's like nine bucks a pack. And I think I paid for the grocery store in Florida like two fifty for the same pack. You can buy it in bulk on Amazon for a lot less money if you fry a lot of fish. I don't. I'm guessing what it is is a regional brand of breading and seasoning in Florida. And somebody that's a third-party seller has it on Amazon because they know that people from Florida will want it and can't get it. Or people that visit Florida will find it and want it and can't get it. Uh, but Louisiana fish fry is good as well. I also do a keto mix for fried fish, and it's... Don't ask me the recipe because it changes based on what I have. But it's usually some sort of a nut meal, like a pecan uh, meal or an almond flour. And then some hard Parmesan cheese and crushed up pork rinds. And then usually like a tablespoon or two of a typical Louisiana Everglades fish fry as a binder. Or you take something like a low-carb bread, throw it in the toaster, and put it through a cheese grater. And you just mix it up as you like it. And then I throw redfish magic seasoning in that mix and stir that up. All right. Uh, so my favorite way when I'm being good is actually fried whole with the redfish magic seasoning. And what they tell you to do when you use the redfish magic seasoning is melt a stick of butter and then like dredge your fish in it. 
It's a bit much. So I melt, you know, a couple of tablespoons of butter, and I get one of those little silicone brushes I recommend, and brush both sides of the fish, sprinkle it with Red Fish Magic, and let it set for at least 30 minutes. That lets the seasoning penetrate, but it also lets it really get sticky and stick to it. So when you fry it, it blackens a little bit, and it stays on the fish. They are fantastic that way. Grilled whole, also with Red Fish Magic. Do the same thing. Throw them on the grill. Just flip them over. You don't need any special shit. They don't, if your grill is properly taken care of, they don't stick, right? They don't fall apart. They're delicious. They're, they're like little chicken wings when you're done with them, except they taste like fish. Smoked, um, I will do them on the grill with the pellet smoker. I will get the pellet smoker going. I'll put them next to the pellet smoker, and I will cold smoke them for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then I'll turn the grill on. And then I'll go ahead and just grill them like normal. If you have the time and the patience, they're really delicious like that. Uh, and again, breaded and pan fried is the go-to. That's places where they're loved. That's the way they're most frequently loved. Uh, there's some spots in New York State where, like, this is a spring tradition, and fried bullheads on a plate, like all-you-can-eat style, uh, are a thing. And I miss those kind of places living down here in Texas where that's not a thing. Last thing on eating them, I just want to reiterate, my wife loves these things. I uh, I do a lot of hunting and raising of, of, of livestock and uh, bartering for game and stuff like that, and she's not real adventurous. I mean, my, my wife grew up in a Dutch family. They pretty much ate, you know, pork chops, applesauce, mashed potatoes, and corn one day. And like some sort of beef with potatoes and brown gravy the next or something like that. I mean, it was, and, and, and cheese and butter and bread. Like that's their go-to. So she grew up with that very conventional diet, you know, didn't eat a lot of anything adventurous. So it's been a struggle at times to get her to try things. And even when she tries things, a lot of times, like things that I think are really good, she's like, nope, nope. You know, she has never turned down one of these things. The other day I made some, and they were pan-fried. And I think we had three apiece that was there. And, like, she'd eaten two, and I had my three. And, I mean, I've got the there's not le nothing left. The cat couldn't enjoy what's left of the bones. And I'm like, uh, are you going to eat the other one? She's like, oh, hell yeah. She knew exactly where I was going, man. I was losing for my fourth. Um, they are kind of small. We usually use them as, like, an appetizer or an addition to meals. And we usually do like two, three a piece, uh, put aside and when we, when we freeze them, uh, in packets like that. And when we eat them, we don't even bother with a fork. It is a firm flesh. If you do what I said today and we pretty much just pick them up and, and, and use your teeth and pull the meat straight off the bones. And it's like a lot like eating a chicken wing. And the only place you have to mind your P's and Q's is right where the rib cage is. You can have a few little straight bones there, but the top piece and then everything behind the rib cage, it's just pure meat. It's something that I wouldn't even hesitate to let a, a little kid eat. Uh, it wouldn't take much training to teach a youngster to be able to eat these things. Final thoughts. Um, I think this is one of the ultimate survival forage options. I, I really do. And, and here's why. Most places are not game fish, so there's no limits. No one cares if you take them. In fact, most people won't ever go after them. That means... If you do get into a situation where people start actually foraging and what have you for food, they're going to be the one of the last things to take a lot of pressure from, from, from others. Um, 
There's very little competitive pressure, so there's almost always an abundant supply of them. They're fast to clean, like we covered if you know how. Their waste is good fertilizer for your garden. So when I clean them, I just have a bucket, and I drop the head and gut piles into a bucket. And then I go to my garden with my garden trowel, and wherever there's an empty space, I move some mulch aside, I dig you know, one or two good garden trowels of dirt out, drop one or two of them in, throw the dirt on, put the mulch on, and go on with life. And I know I'm fertilizing the hell out of my garden that way. Um, they're found almost anywhere in North America anyway. There's almost no place you can't catch them. Kids love them, so it's great to take your kids fishing for them because there's enough action that they don't get bored. Um, they teach you all you need to know to get started fishing. If you're a new fisherman, uh, I would say that like bluegill slash perch slash sunfish, sass, brim, whatever you want to call them, like that group of fish and bullheads together are like every kid's entryway into fishing. And what happens is when we get older, we think we're too good for that. I still do it. I'm almost 50 years old, and I, I, I am kind of bummed that, like, my buddy David, who keeps a lot of backyard fish like I do, he texted me on, I think it was Friday uh, last week, and he's like, man, my fish are eating like crazy today. Maybe it was Saturday, and I'm like, yeah, mine too, and I don't have time to go out. So I'm kind of bummed that I didn't get to run down to one of my little parks or whatever and catch some of these guys and stock more of my tanks this week because – Right after that, this cold front moved in, and it's kind of shut down the, the action. That's one of the cool things about keeping backyard fish. When you throw pellets in and they go crazy, probably a good day to go fishing because they do respond to pressure in fronts and things like that. Um, but they do teach you everything you need to know. If you can catch bullheads and, 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 and bluegills consistently of a size that are worthy of consumption, going to that catching bass, going to that catching channel catfish, going to targeting trout, etc. It's it's no big leap. And then once you dial in a location, like I know this place, and I know where they are in August, and I know where they are in May, and I know where they are in winter, you can catch them almost year-round. I mean, there are times when like this cold front, it's kind of like wet, cold, windy, Winds out of the north. I could kill, go catch some if I really wanted to. It's just, it, the action's not really there to warrant being out in the cold, misty, wet rain for a freaking bullhead. But I could catch some. But you know, let just one nice high pressure system move in for a day or two, and they'll be back on. And one of the things I advise you with fishing in general is keep a notebook, keep a logbook. But especially with something like this, because they're so consistent, time of the day. The date itself, the water temperature, and the spot. Not just, you know, Joe Bob's Park, but Joe Bob's Park, you know, right side of the pier, uh, four foot out from the shore or six foot out or center of the pond or whatever. Because you'll think you'll remember and you won't. And if you do that, once you kind of dial in a location, you can pretty much go to that location around that same time of year, around those same sort of you know barometric conditions, and same bait, same depth of water, same method, they'll be there. They're just going to be there. And it's inevitable that they'll be there because they're not getting fished out because they produce like rats and nobody keeps them. So you dial that location, and then you have this place that you know that's close to home. You have this food supply. And you're not going to live on it, but boy, I mean, you're talking about fat and protein that's harvestable that you do almost no work for. And once you know how to do it, I mean, your ROI on bait versus catch is huge. 
plus you have a fertility agent for your garden, right? And no one cares. No one even pays attention to you. When people see you keeping bullhead catfish, you're like, that's weird. Okay, you think that. So I do. I think they're the ult like they're not the ultimate survival forage option. They are an ultimate. I think there's probably a list that's very regional. Like Pennsylvania, man, mushrooms are everywhere if you know what you're doing. Texas, not so much. There's other things that we would forage here. But man, this is cross regional. From from like up in New England, down to Florida, over to California, up into Washington State, all through the Mid-South and Midwest. I mean, it's they're everywhere, and they're delicious, no matter what you say. I've eaten too many to believe otherwise. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I'll let me remind you that one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is do that online shopping at tspaz.com. I bet you... I bet you many of you will start doing a lot more holiday shopping in the coming few days. Well, if you start at T-Spaz, no matter what you buy when you shop online, you will help us out. It's just that easy. Today's item of the day I'm bringing around because it's on sale. It's not a huge sale, but it's 22% off, about $10 off. It is the Streamlight Stylus Pro flashlight, but specifically it's the USB rechargeable one. So this one comes with a little USB cord and an adapter. You can plug it into your computer. You can plug it into the wall, and it recharges. All right. So it's this. It's the same one I've been recommending forever, except it's rechargeable. It does cost about twice as much, but when you do the math at how long, at how many hours you get out of the uh, the lithium battery pack in it, it would be like buying 150 sets of AAA alkaline batteries. That would be 75 bucks. So in the end, you come out ahead about $48 over buying batteries for your regular Streamlight. Of course, if you use rechargeable batteries, maybe you want the regular Streamlight. But here's the other thing that I really like about this uh, flashlight. All the battery pack that Streamlight sells is, is a wrapped-up thing with two lithium-ion AAAs in it. So you can throw lithium-ion AAA rechargeable batteries in it of any make, and it will recharge, plug it in, and it will recharge. Or you can recharge them from, like, your end loop charger, etc., right? Or if you don't have any rechargeable batteries and it runs out, you can throw regular AAAs in there, and as long as you don't try to charge them, you'll be fine. So you have lots of options with it. So it's rechargeable, or it can default back to a regular plain old Streamlight stylus flashlight. I really love these things. They are a fantastic light. As many as I've bought, I've given all but one away. At any one time, I have like one stream light in my possession, and I usually I usually don't buy this rechargeable one. I put it out there because I had a request to find a rechargeable version of it, and somebody showed me one. I'm like, okay, this works. Um, I have stuck to the standard ones. You can get those too. There's a link in the write-up today. Um, I give those away. They're one of my prepper evangelical things. They're about 20 bucks. And you're somewhere, somebody needs a light, you show it to them, oh, this is pretty cool. Tell you what, if you'll carry it, I'll give it to you. And it ends up becoming something that kind of like gets that EDC mindset going. Like, look, it goes in your pocket right here, that type of thing. But if you want a rechargeable one, this is the way to go. And today would be a good day because they are on sale for 22% off. Remember, if you want to stay in touch with all this stuff, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. I'm on a lot of alternative social media like Parlor and MeWe. But the Telegram channel is probably the best way to stay in touch with us. When something goes on sale, it's a really great deal. I put it out on Telegram first thing in the morning. Sometimes it's sold out by the time the show comes out. Sometimes it's like 
a really good deal, and people are bummed out they didn't get in on it. It just happened with the Gerber Dime. It happened with one of the DeWalt deals. So it's a good way to be on. And, the, you know, I know Telegram, but there's going to be like a million people telling me a million things that I don't care about. Some people love that kind of communication. That's what we have a group for. We also have a channel. The channel is just me to you saying, hey, here's a new post. Hey, here's a new video. A few times a day, if you get bored with it, you can delete it. You can unsubscribe. You can mute it so it's there, but it doesn't make a ding every time it goes off. It's up to you. But people are really digging the Telegram channel. Also consider becoming a member. You do that, you get discounts. It pays for your membership. You support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And without members, I could not do this show every day the way that I do. Last but not least, let us speak about the song of the day. Um, I, today, was on MeWe. And I saw someone just posted a song, and I thought, this is a great song for today. It fits me, Augie Mornings, about getting off of Facebook. It's by Aaron Tippin, and this is an old song. It's been around forever. And most of you that like country music anyway will probably have heard it. It's you've got to stand for something. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. I don't want to beat this up about getting off of these other social media platforms. If you're on Facebook and follow me, you know that I troll about once a day. I throw something up there that's really insulting a Mark Zuckerberg, daring them to ban me, and saying, hey, we're over here instead. And that's all I'll do with Facebook anymore because it's fun. Um, but they do track you. Take the politics, put it aside. They do track you. Watch my episode of Miyagi Mornings this, this morning to, to see how bad this is or wait for the uh, recap to come out on Saturday to see how bad this is. I give you ways to protect yourself from it if you want to be there. But I want you to just think about it this way. I want you to think about your grandfather. And if you're if you're pretty young yet and your grandfather's pretty young yet, I want you to envision or remember if you ever knew your great-grandfather. And I, I understand when we get back this far back, you know, like my grandfather passed away in 1993. All right, and he was a very old man when he passed away. So when you get back into that generation, it's hard to even think of them using something like a Facebook But just think about who they were morally. Okay? And then imagine that they were not technophobic and they were willing to use technology like this. But somebody told your grandpa, grandpa, or your great-grandpa, great-grandpa, if you use this technology, the person who's providing it will collect massive amounts of data on you and sell you like a whore to any corporation that wants to buy your information, including foreign governments, you will be nothing but an information product. And they will act as a surveillance agent for the United States government and report everything you do while you're using this technology. Additionally, Grandpa, or Great-Grandpa, not only that, but they will employ such deep tracking technologies that even when you leave this Facebook thing and close it, They will track you on other websites and report that data and sell that data as well. Why don't you use this, Grandpa? Do you think he might have slapped you in the ear? And don't you think you would have felt the same way if Facebook started that way? See, Facebook is like digital heroin. They've got you on it. They've got your family on it. They've got your friends on it. They've got you hooked. If you step out of line, they'll put you in Facebook jail. Just like an abusive boyfriend. And I'm not leaving because my friend, my family's there. I won't be able to see what's going on. Hey, install Facebook container and look, but don't participate. Find another place. Find a new home. Because here's the reality. If you say you care about your family and friends, someone has to go 
first. In every group, there's leaders and followers. And if you want to be a leader, you have to go first. That's how you lead. That's why I stopped being there just because y'all were there. As a business person, I justified it for a couple of years that I wanted to be out of there. With, hey, man, this is this is significant revenue I'm talking about here. By the end, I thought about my grandfather. My old crusty coal mining grandfather who lived to his dying days with lumps of coal in his arm. And I thought of what he'd think of me. Because I was there because other people were. And when I really let that sink in, I knew it had to happen. So the only reason you see me there at all now is to say, hey, it's better over here. I know some of y'all don't use social media, and that's fine. I don't ever try to talk somebody into it that doesn't want to do it. But if you're going to use it, go somewhere that respects your privacy, respects you as a person, doesn't use you. As far as my family and friends are there, then lead them. We lead through example. We don't lead through conformity. You've got to stand for something. Great song. One stanza in particular seems to stand out here if you happen to be a person that's been using it as a brand or a business and are afraid of what it can cost you. Now we might have had a, we, now we might have been better off or owned a bigger house if daddy had done a little more giving in or a little more backing down. But we always had plenty just living his advice. Whatever you do today, you'll have to sleep with tonight. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Now, Daddy didn't like trouble, but if it came along, everyone that knew him knew it side that he'd be on. He never was a hero for this county shining light. You could always find him standing up for what he thought was right. He'd say you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. You've got to be your own man, not a puppet on a string. Never compromise what's right and uphold your family name. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for now we might have been better off Or on the bigger house If daddy had done more giving in Or a little more backing down But we always had plenty Just to live in his advice Whatever you do today You'll have to sleep Tonight, he'd say you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. You've got to be your own man, not a puppet on a string. Never compromise what's right and uphold your family name. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. I know that things are different than they were in Daddy's day, but I still believe what makes a man really hasn't changed. You've got to stand for something, or 